Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the inaugural podcast of Colloquium. I'm Brian Adams and I have Jerome Myers with me today. And I'll be honest, I'm a little nervous. I've never been on this side of the table. I've always been the one answering the questions for the most part. So bear with me, but I think this will be a good one. Jerome, what is it like to be a black man in America today? You know, I don't know that my experience is all that different than yours. I think I probably went to different schools than you did. You know, I'm an engineer by training instead of an attorney, but still a professional. I've got an advanced degree. And I was able to go through the myriad of what they tell you, right? Go to school, do well, get a good job, get married, have kids, work for 40 years and quit. And I didn't have any challenges there. I got to do all of those things pretty easily. But in 2010, I went through what I would consider a depression. I didn't actually go talk to anybody to get that diagnosis, but I was sad. It was really sad. And the stuff that I've been chasing didn't feel fulfilling. And I don't know that that's any different than most people that are in that age group or maybe a little bit older. How old were you when this went down? 27. So I just broke six figures the year before. And so it was just like, oh, everything's happening. And that's where it's supposed to be magical, right? You make six figures and all your problems go away because you're rich and not anywhere close to being the truth. But where I came from, that was kind of the idea. It's like, you make six figures, you can do anything. And so... I had to go through and answer those questions and start asking some really tough questions. I started asking what I believed, why I believed it, who was I actually, where did it come from? And I mean, I I could go on and on. I, I questioned everything, including religion and why I was doing the practices and traditions that I was doing. And for anything that I couldn't ground and why I believed it and I realized that I was just being, I had been programmed as a child and I was just continuing to live that out. I made an adjustment and I stopped doing things. And Brian, this will be super, I'll call it simple, but like people say, bless you. They said it for years and centuries or whatever, but why? I got that basic with my questions. And what I realized was, you're not going to die. So saying bless you because your heart stopped because you sneeze. It's the only kind of scientific explanation that I've ever heard. 
it just didn't make sense. And so, you know, when you go to things that fundamental and foundational, and then you start rebuilding your life and you start to understand, hey, this is different. I think you begin to see the world in a different way. And so I went through that transformation and it's a really long answer to a pretty short question, but my view of the world has very little to do with me as a black man. Like I don't have a great instance of racism or me being held back by the man or anything else. In fact, it's probably shameful for me to say, but it's a statement of fact people outside of my race have done more to advance my position, whether it's financial or relationships or any other position that you can think of and privilege than people within my own community. And I don't think, and I can say this with certainty, it's not because they didn't have the opportunity to advance it. They just didn't. And so I frame it that way And I have a totally different conversation than most people. Do I understand what some people are upset about? Absolutely. Am I upset about those things? I think there's been some great atrocities that have happened. But is that my experience? I can't say that it is. You know, I've been in plenty of interactions with police officers and the stuff that's been sensationalized, that hasn't been my experience. The worst experience that I've had, and this is probably worth going since you've been in the prosecutor's side. So I broke into my house one day. My, my lady and I were building a new home, which I'm in today. And my buddy came in from Charlotte and it wasn't unlocked. And so it was pre-closed. We went and checked the windows in the back and one of the windows was open. So we crawled in through the window and I just wanted to show him the house because we were so close and we were excited. And so somebody called the police. And so we're leaving. We're in his 300ZX. For those who don't know, it's a really small sports car. And so we get pulled over. It's a felony traffic stop. And it's my first time being in a felony traffic stop. And for your listeners who've never been in one, I hope they never are in one. But we're on the side of an interstate when the police officer catches us. And he comes across a bullhorn, turn the car off and drop the keys out the window. I'm like, I wasn't going that fast. Like he's being outrageous, right? And then more and more cars keep coming up as I'm looking in the side view mirror. And there's probably six or eight police officers and separate cruisers there at that point. And there's shotguns drawn. They're hiding in the crevice of the doors like you see in movies. And they say, take your left arm out the window, open the door from the outside and step out of the car. And they tell him to do the same thing. He was letting me drive. He just finished doing some go fast work on his engine. And we get out and they tell us not to look back. And again, we're on the side of the highway, right? Interstate. And so they're like, take a step left. And for me, left was closer and closer to traffic. And so now I'm terrified. I'm like, are they gonna walk me into traffic? Cause this is crazy. And then they walk us back and then eventually he tells us to get on our knees with our hands behind our head and they cuff us. And then they try to figure out like what's going on. And it was like, did I think it was a little outrageous? I did, but they were just told that we were breaking and entering. And so I understand the dichotomy of these guys are criminals. And for your listeners, I don't, I don't know if we're going to do video or not, but I fit the description of a thug in a lot of ways. I've got dreads. I started growing my hair in 2010. I have visible tattoos. I played linebacker in college football. So I'm a pretty big fella. And for some people, that's scary. Especially if you don't know me and you you, you had no interaction. And so I think this is kind of the stereotype that Because if you don't have interaction, you can only believe what you've been exposed to, right? And part of my goal, part of my mission is to break stereotypes. And so, you know, when I was in corporate, when I decided that I was going to stop getting haircuts and I didn't have to wait until I retired in order to grow my hair long because I wanted to grow my hair long, I thought there was something to it. And 
on the journey, I found out there was a whole lot more to it than I understood when I started the journey. People told me that I was ruining my career. I was labeled as a high potential employee. I was getting new opportunities without applying for them. I'd been pegged for somebody's leadership. I was working with a coach that the company was kind of providing for me that was working with other senior executives. I was getting leadership development training that wasn't tied to my position, but reserved for supervisors and managers and directors. And so they were making those investments in me directly. And I was doing something that was counterculture. And it was, hey, Jerome, well, nobody that has the position that you want looks like that. And I never actually said this directly. And now that I'm so far removed and I realize I'm never going back, I'm probably a little more candid than I would be if I thought I was going to go get a job. But the thing that I realized was nobody looks like me anyway, Brian, right? My skin is brown. It's very chocolatey. My nose is broad and my lips are full. It doesn't matter if I have a short haircut or not. It doesn't matter if I'm clean shaven or not. They still don't look like me when I, I walk in a room. And so if appearance is the thing, then I can't fix that anyway. So what difference does this piece really make? And why are we so focused on appearance instead of the creed and character of the person and the quality of their work or the decisions that they could make? And that's where I sit today, but I'm free from what I consider the matrix. Yeah. So I don't think we're going to have video. And so for people's benefit, what does your shirt say? I took the red pill. And you just referenced the matrix and you're talking about corporate culture, conformity, almost an alternate reality. What does that metaphor mean to you? Yeah, I think there's a couple of different things. So we've created a model of life. We call it the centered model for living. I think a lot of people are chasing work-life balance and they never actually achieve it because when you have balance, there is no movement. And I think everybody who's a high achiever is looking to move. And so what we look for is a centered life where you can show up as your best self, not as some makeshift half put together thing, but somebody who is aggressively pursuing that higher state of performance and impact. And so, you know, there's six different levels to it. It's self-image. We start there because your relationship with yourself is most important. Then we move to relationships with others and how you interact with them, because we feel like if you've got a great relationship with yourself, you'll attract others to you who are at a high level from a performance standpoint. Then we move over to work because after you fix your relationships, your work, getting alignment with your values and the work or the impact that you're making in the world becomes extremely important. And you're able to do that because you've grown your influence through your relationships. From there, we move to health. I think those first three things are what cause the most stress in your life. The relationship with yourself, your relationship with others and your work. And so we want to get those taken care of so that when you move to health, you don't have a reason to exhibit those self-destructive behaviors. And, you know, whatever you're addicted to, that thing, we want to be able to move the catalysts or the triggers from that so that you can have great health. From there, we go to prosperity. Prosperity always comes after health because if you have prosperity before health, the health will take it away, right? This ease is going to be very expensive to take care of. And then the final thing is significance. That is the only true success in the way that I see the world today. It's the ability to impact others, make the world better. And so the red pill references that scene where Morpheus presents Neo with two options. You can either take the red pill and understand truth and see the world for what it really is, or you can take the blue pill and be fat, dumb, and happy. And, you know, that blissfulness that a lot of people live in, but it's empty and shallow. And so when I say I took the red pill, I wanted truth. I wanted to live out that truth. And in order to live out that truth, we had to make some pretty aggressive adjustments to the frame because I had to reprogram. And so that six step model is what kind of the outlay of that or the result of that experience. You say we, who who is we? It's more than just you. It's always more than just me, whether it's just me or not, right? I'm Nigerian, right? My 
great, great, great grandfather came across the Atlantic in the belly of a slave ship, right? He, he was cargo on, on a ship. And so my goal today is to be their wildest dream, right? Unbelievable, can't believe that we were here and now he's doing this. And so I have the burden of those folks and all the sacrifices that they made and their ability to be survivors in a place where a lot of people just didn't make it through to somebody who's thriving and making a huge impact on the world. So they're always with me, right? But then it's just people like James Bryan and Deron Chandler and folks I've met along the way who've joined me on this journey of continuous self-improvement and consuming and finding content that's gonna help us go to that next level. I wasn't fortunate enough to sit around the dinner table and talk entrepreneurship. So when I wanted to go do that, I had to start over because I didn't have somebody to go ask. I didn't have a network to go and say, hey, I'm starting this thing. I really appreciate your support by you doing this or you calling this person. I had no idea that that was even an option. I didn't know that was a thing. And so just the people who I'm doing life with and figuring out along the way, as we all are, is the we. And then the people who are cheering from the sidelines who are like, I'm not sure that I'm willing to make that sacrifice in order to have that level of freedom. I want to do it for them so that if they ever come along and they decide that they're ready to make that transition, they have the social proof that they can do it. And so it's it's a community of we. You are we, right? From our first conversation, you've been extremely generous with your knowledge. Your, I mean, is whatever you need. Your, I'm just let me know. Like I, I want to help you, and you've had a couple of interactions before that where you got to assess me and what I'm about, but you've never asked for anything, and I don't even know that I have anything that I can offer you that you couldn't get some other way. But this little symbol here is a West African symbol that is for cooperation. And it, the translation is help me help you. Right. And so I think it's extremely important that we get ourselves in position that we can help other people help us, but we're also excited to help other people. And I think like you're a great example of just what I think is only law of the world, which is love. Like you show up and you're willing to help other people, whether you think it's going to turn around and be impactful for you on the back end, not all that important. Can you do it all that time? No, but for a small group of people where you can actually have an impact. And I think that's probably the lesson to take away from the people who are listening to this is do what you can where you are. You don't have to fix the whole world, but you can do something today. And what's been... As you've gone through this journey, I assume you've gone through all six steps personally. Yeah. If you're, you're on the next, the other end of this. Yeah. What's been the most substantive realization that you've made? I think the first thing I realized was when I stopped doing things for money, I just left the power company and I was working for a consulting firm. And the guy said, hey, Jerome, I see you charge your admin budget this week. You should have charged a client. And I said, well, I finished the project for the client. It's a transition week. And so I'm on the admin budget for a week until we get the new project over. And he said, no, you need to charge a client. I was like, I'm not charging the client if I don't have any work for that client. And he said, listen, you're never going to charge your admin budget again. You're going to charge clients. You need to structure your work in a way such that you don't charge admin budget. And I said, look, I'm not going to steal from our clients. And it was that day that I decided that I was going to leave that company. It was that day that I decided that it didn't matter that they gave me a $10,000 signing bonus that I was going to have to return because I didn't stay long enough in order to keep that money. And it was that day I realized that I didn't do things for money anymore. Money wasn't going to be the reason why I was doing what I was doing. There always had to be something else. And so that has hurt me in some ways from a comfort standpoint, 
because there's a whole lot of things that I could do to make more money than I do today that I choose not to do because I feel like the work that I do is more meaningful and impactful and going to have a greater influence on the way that the world is shaped and formed going forward. But in the same breath, money's like air, Brian. If you don't have it, it becomes an emergency and it becomes an emergency right then, right? If you run out of air, you're in trouble. And so for me, finding that balance and not being so so militant in going the wrong way because it's kind of like a pendulum was hard. You know, I was in a rough relationship and where I felt like I was just a wallet. And so I resented the fact that I was an earner, right? And that took my gift away to earn, at least temporarily, because I resented it. And so understanding kind of the laws of the universe and how all these things kind of come together is big. But at the end of the day, I don't live my life for money. Money serves me. Money's a tool is the lesson. There's a lot to unpack there. (laughs) I think I asked you three questions and we're 25 minutes in. But the one thing that I want to dig into a little bit more is this concept of transitioning out of corporate culture into being an entrepreneur, but the focus is not monetary gain. So what, what is the end game and why did you make that transition? And is that reason different today than if I'd asked you that when you started doing real estate? The answer to your last question is, would it be the same? The answer to that question is yes. More clear today than it was before. I had kind of a North Star, but I didn't really know what it was. was looking through a telescope instead of being right up on it. Now I'm right up on it. It goes back to the top level of the red pill, which is significance. And so I'm seeking significance. I had what I thought was a lot of money. You know, I had a 6,000 square foot house. I had a supercar. I I had those things that I dreamed of as a kid. Like I grew up in a 1,200 square foot house as a kid, right? So to my first house being 24 and then the next being six, it was, it was unbelievable. I mean, I remember my ex's parents saying, hey, they live in a mansion. It's like, I, I can't even fathom coming from a neighborhood where, I came from being in that place and it was always fun to open the door to the house and people ask where my parents were. That was like the most fun part of all of it, if I'm totally honest, but significance and being a person who somebody would say, I don't know if I could have got here had it not been for my interaction with you was so much more rewarding than what I could swipe my card for or what car I could drive fast or what I could hang up at the house. And by all measures of success, I'm probably behind where I was when I was doing that. House is smaller, cars are older and not as nice, et cetera. But when I wake up in the morning, it is very much, I get to talk to people that I really enjoy who are working on things that I think are going to impact the world in a big way. And I've got a small piece of that. And if I can duplicate that across a hundred people over the course of the rest of my life, then I'm immortal. And that, that immortality, that impact has been the difference. And so the one thing that I was probably most fortunate to do before I left corporate was endow the first engineering scholarship And it's a full engineering scholarship at the university that I went to. That for me was one of those, I have a dream moments. And I walked up to the chancellor and was like, I got a dream. I want to do this. And he said, okay, let's figure out how to get it done. And we were able to get that done. And it's something I'm super proud of, but it's very different than the work I do today. There's something about writing a check that gives you some level of fulfillment, but time is your most valuable resource because you can't replenish it. And so who you choose to spend that with and what you choose to spend that on says more about who you are and what you truly value than whatever you could ever write a check for. 
And so back to the money, but significance, impact is what I'm chasing. The next person I'm interviewing, she is a, a wellness holistic coach, and she works almost exclusively with Wall Street titans of finance. And I'm reading her book right now. Her name's Julie Wald. She talks about how these people who she interacts with have more things, chattel, than you could ever imagine, but they're some of the most empty and miserable people that she's ever interacted with in her life. And you have to wonder on, on some level, and I think about this a lot, is, is our culture meant for us to spend time chasing these things to attain them so that we're not paying attention to what's actually going on around us? We're distracted, Brian. We're absolutely distracted. We're trying to fill holes in our souls with things. We're trying to rationalize the way that we spend our time and the things that we do by writing checks. And it doesn't actually fix anything. I'll never forget when I decided I was done, like done with corporate was after I had to lay people off for the second time, two years in a like it was back to back years. And the first year I promised myself I would never do it again. It was my first, I said, this is my first and last time doing this. This is miserable. I hung up the phone on Christmas Eve. Well, actually I got hung up on on Christmas Eve with the last sentence being, Jerome, we're going to do this. You can either pick your team or somebody can do it for you. And spending Christmas through New Year's deciding how, and we're going to make this process objective so that the people who did the work peak performers, high performers actually don't get adversely impacted by this. And to fast forward and have to do the same thing again. Oh yeah. And I made 30% profit margins. Come on. It's just not realistic. And so on a $20 million business, we could have figured out what to do with people. We didn't have to put them on the street, but that was the choice. And I think that's probably the other piece of this of, you know, just having control freedom, over what you do and how you do it. And knowing that the buck stops with you and it's not figuratively, no, literally, if I don't sell coaching or if I don't buy a building or if it doesn't produce rent proceeds on a given month, that's on me. Nobody else to point to, nobody else to tell me, well, we're not gonna pay out. No, that's that's my call. I have a personal theory that this and I fall into it constantly, but this busy trap concept that somehow it equates to productivity or you would probably ascribe meaning to it, right? Or significance in your terms. I personally think it's meant to ensure that we don't reflect on our own death because if we're given 12 minutes in a room with nothing to do, I think most people's minds goes to a pretty dark place today because we're so unaccustomed to it. Yeah. I spend a lot of time with myself. I like quiet, but I spend a lot of time with myself, usually three to four hours every day. And I try to minimize the technology in that, unless it's having somebody on the internet or some podcast, or I don't even know what you call it, but speaking positive things into my world or teaching me something. But yeah, people don't like themselves and they try to cover that up and they cover it up in a lot of different ways. And that is scary. If you don't like yourself and you feel trapped, and this comes back to the matrix, and you're not willing to do something about it because you're scared that the people around you are going to say you're going backwards or you fell off or whatever. So you got to keep up the appearance of the thing. So you have to keep doing the money. Now you're a slave to money. Money's not your tool. And that is the farthest thing from what I want my life to be anymore. Again, let's take it back to my great, 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 great grandfather coming across and actually experiencing physical slavery. We've just moved the shackles and more of us are enslaved than we'd ever be willing to admit. So that is a question that I wanted to ask, but it's interestingly you've put a different lens over it. Do you think 
slavery ever really ended for your family? I do. And some people will call me naive, but I've been able to move pretty effortlessly through different circles, through different environments. I've worked side by side with people who went to Ivy League schools. I've sat down with executives at Fortune 100 companies. And I've never felt like I was inferior or troubled. Um, In fact, I've actually felt endeared and people excited about me being around. I don't think that exists in slavery, right? I don't think that we've made as much progress as I would have liked, but that probably had more to do with risk tolerance than anything else, right? My dad left home at 16 and joined the Marines. He went to Vietnam, he came back, he got out of the Marines, then he went into the army, did army for 20 years, got out of the army, drove trucks for a little bit. Now he's a postmaster in the U.S. Postal Service. So always been a civil servant, always made okay money. We weren't poor, we weren't rich. And try not to skip over this ever because it's so impactful for me. My dad used to jump out of airplanes for extra $200 a month. That $200 a month would pay for us to get pizza. It would pay for shoes and it would pay for some extra clothes so I could go to school and be fancy. And that for us was a lot. That was meaningful. Knowing what I know now about assets, knowing what I know now about what true wealth looks like, and knowing what I know now about the impacts of jumping out of an airplane and putting that type of torment on your joints, I wish he never would have did that. I've watched him for the past 20 years cringe as he stood up and sat down because he's got intense arthritis in his knees and his hips. Um, He had to have two hip replacement surgeries and for like 15 years, they wouldn't do it because the VA only pays for one replacement surgery and it's based on life expectancy. And so he just had to kind of suffer through that or pay for that out of pocket because his insurance wouldn't cover it. I say all that to say, I think while slavery has ended, we can walk into rooms that we couldn't have walked into before. There are some people who had a head start because they didn't have that impediment when we did. Free labor for however many years is free labor for however many years. That's not going into your wealth building. That's not going into your creation. And so, you know, my dad lived with his grandfather. He was a bus driver, right? So back to the civil servant. So he emulated what his example did. And I could have emulated the example that my dad gave me, which was going to the military as that was one of the three options that I saw most frequently in the people that I grew up around and played with every day. You went in the military, you went and worked at the factory, or you sold drugs. Those were the three career trajectories. And I was a weirdo. I went to college and studied engineering and played football. So did you get pushback from your community when you left corporate world? I didn't really ask for their feedback. And I don't know that I got much of it. Other than my mom saying, how are you going to pay for insurance? And not really having an answer for that because I didn't know. Like, I didn't know how you go get insurance outside of a job because that wasn't a thing, right? At the end of the day, the people around me knew that I'd been able to do everything that I set out to do and did it at a pretty high level. So they didn't fight with me about it. And they knew that something was happening because of the changes in my appearance and the things that I was interested in, the way I spent my time, how precise I was with my words and how I stayed away from the idle chatter. And that, I think, signaled to them that, hey, give them a shot and see what happens. And now that I've been out for four years, this whole notion of, hey, you can always just go get a job, I think that would feel like death at this point. I don't know that I'm employable. 
the freedom and the burden that comes with being on your own and being the person who's responsible for it all, I think is addictive in some ways, much like a paycheck. I think a lot of us are addicted to a paycheck. We're getting paid every other Friday or we're getting paid on the 1st and the 15th or we're getting paid on the 26th or whatever that day is. I didn't want to be addicted to that anymore. It's uncomfortable. But then when you get profits, that number is always way bigger than a paycheck. The only worry was you've got two little girls. How are you going to sustain them if you do this? How are you going to make sure they have the care that they need? And my wife at the time gave me no reprieve. When I left, I had to find insurance for me and the two kids while she stayed on her employer's health plan. I mean, she wanted me to feel the full weight of my decision. And I think that was indicative of our relationship, but it just went to show me that I really had to be committed to this and I really had to do everything that I, in my power and to make it work because nobody was going to make it easier for me. Not even the people in my home. So you talk about profits compared to being an entrepreneur to a corporate gig. You equate that with success, correct? No. I think that will keep you in business, but I think success is the impact that you make on the people that you work with. So those profits are a tool that you can leverage to create more significance in your life? I think those profits are a tool to pay for things that are things being resources that you want to either see happen. So it can be some type of program. It can be advertising to grow the brand so that you can help more people. It could be a number of different things, but I don't, I don't think the scoreboard is profit. And that is something that I'm still working through because I don't think the wealthiest person is always a person who's had the biggest impact. And Brian, you, you may be able to help me with this because We've talked about your perspective on a few different things. And the one that's been most interesting is the marketing versus the sales stuff. But the pill that I had to swallow over the past nine months or so is it's not, you don't get compensated for value. Most people are getting compensated from the ability to market and sell. Something with more value can be sitting next to something with less value. And because of the way that it's packaged, somebody will choose to buy that other thing that's of less value at a higher price than the thing of more value at a lower price. And that broke my heart because I've always worked extremely hard to be a person of value and to deliver products that are valuable and focus nothing on the packaging, right? And that hurt because I realized that I had to spend time on that. And I didn't think that it was important to spend time on it. You should just see the value was my thought. And that's the engineer in me, right? No, the value is right there. It's obvious. Can't you see it? It's not good enough for the uneducated consumer. Yeah. I think that product would need to be so valuable and so good in order to not have the sparkle associated with it that there's really only a few examples that you can use. I mean, they're out there, but when you look at the market, say, and where value is ascribed to companies, if you don't know what the product is, then you're the product. And if you look at a lot of these tech companies, the value creation is the time that you spend engaged on their platforms and their ability to cross-sell you and upsell you on advertisings. And that's the deal we made with the devil, right? When, when Facebook came out and said it's free, there's no free lunch, right? Somebody's paying for it. Somebody's making money and somebody's paying for that free experience. And you're the product. And I think it's taken us a long time to realize it. And meanwhile, these guys have made a lot of money. And that's where, when I, I love your metaphor or the alluding to the matrix, because when you see people on their phone, 
know, that image of them sucking that life force out of them and going to, you know, the supercomputer in Silicon Valley, that is what drives the engine. And it's really scary to me. And I think every generation looks back on their childhood as a simpler time. I think that's a false narrative. And I, I truly believe that nostalgia is a really powerful drug that we have to be wary of. I think the realization that maybe we've reached an inflection point where the supercomputers and the Stanford MBAs, they're too smart for us and we want the pellet and we're going to keep pressing the button to get the pellet. And they've kind of figured out our most base instinct. It's very hard to push back against. And I think that goes to your point where now we've been trained that it's not about value. It's about likes or whatever, you know, popularity contest that seemingly applies to your life. That's, that's where the value is ascribed. And as a father, you're a father. It's scary to look down on that and think, how do you manage this? How do I, as a 38 year old guy push back against, I mean, Zuckerberg's worth 90 billion personally. Like, how do I push back against that? How do I fight that? I don't have the answer, but I think it's an important question to ask. I think you can push back on that by being the example where you are. If you are on your phone all the time in front of the little one, the little one's going to assume that the phone is more interesting than he or she is, period. And so when they got the opportunity to have the phone, it's going to be more interesting than the people who are around them. And that's a hard pill to swallow, right? Because we're busy. We have to do this. We have to do that. Just one more thing instead of, no, let's, let's sit down and have a conversation. How was your day, honey? What did you do? What are you most excited about? And really digging into their world and the way they see it. You know, I was having a conversation with a neighbor and she said, are the girls excited about, I've got two girls, they're eight and 10. Are they excited about Christmas? I said, well, not really. I mean, they don't really watch TV, so they don't have a toy they have to have because they haven't had it dangled in front of them. And, you know, whatever they get, they'll be happy with and they'll enjoy and they'll play with it and we'll move on to the next thing. And she had complete consternation with that. She's like, what in the world is going on? And it's just programming and following the model. You know, for a lot of people, the first lie that they get from their parents is Santa Claus is coming and they've got to do this and they got to do that. I think that's the beginning of the manipulation cycle and the programming that carries us on through, hey, you've got to get a job and work there for 40 years so you can get your pension. And then your pension is going to be 60% of whatever you made. So you can't actually live the lifestyle you were living before when you now have time to go do this stuff. And so, you know, enjoy your two weeks a year and you're not even fully engaged when you're taking your two weeks a year with your family. So what did you really do it for? And this is why, like, we're talking about this mastermind for dads called Pow Wow at the Mountaintop, because we as men who are traditionally in a general perspective, the providers, we go out and we say, we're doing this for our family. We're going out, we're hunting, we're bringing it back home so that the family can eat. But when we actually get the opportunity to have time with the family, we're not there, we're somewhere else. And being where your feet are is magical, especially for the little people who are looking at you and all they really want at the end of the day is your time. They want to be valued and important and have you locked in with them. Sure, they go off and do something else. But then when they come back, knowing you there is extremely satisfying. So, yeah, man, I, I can't emphasize enough, like, the importance of being where your feet are and not letting others program your kids. I think we get the opportunity to install that initial operating system. and. I think we can do it to their benefit or we can do it to their fault. But if we don't do it, someone else will. So what is the end game for you as an entrepreneur? Is there an end game? 
So if we talk numbers, I, I want to be worth $10 million or at 55, I quit. Those are the two. So whatever I get done between now and 55 or when I get to 10 million, I'm out. The other number is helping 100 people exit jobs they're not passionate about and do work that brings them vigor in life. Those are the three metrics that I'm measuring against. And the goal is to hit each one of those and have a huge impact on people's lives so that I become immortal long range. I mean, that's what I want in my eulogy is I've, he's touched the lives of so many people that he's going to be immortal. It's powerful, man. It's really good stuff. And, and I love your reference to the scoreboard. If you don't have a scoreboard every day and it's not about the money, then how can you have a number? How can you have a number of, you know, an F off numbers, I would call it. I'm doing what I love already though. So why would I need to tell anybody that? And for the people who I work with in one-on-one coaching, I tell them point blank, if you're not making progress, I don't want your money, right? And so if you're not going to do things I asked you to do, which I know are going to move you closer to the thing that you came to me and said you want it, because the whole goal is dream realization for me, then I'm going to fire you and you can go give somebody else money and not get the value. For me, it's creating the end result. And so as long as I'm creating the end result, I don't need to F off. And I'm fortunate enough to work with people and do things that I really enjoy doing. And I think it's going to make the world a better place. When I left corporate was when I hit that point. Right. And now I'm living in a space of I'm not forced to do things I don't want to do. And I don't have a real interest in building a huge company with a bunch of people to manage. I want to live a nice, simple life and work on really meaningful work. And I think I'll still be able to buy my Lamborghini Aventador at some point because I'm still a car guy through and through. But I don't think I have to run a multi-billion dollar corporation in order to do that. I think I can do that with a really, really small group of guys and gals who are passionate about this thing. And they want somebody to go on the journey with them as a tour guide instead of what you see in a lot of places where it's a bunch of travel agents with their hand out and they send them off on this wild goose chase. And then they get out there and they don't know what to do. I like being in the trenches with people, sleeves rolled up, figuring it out and redirecting and pivoting and being the thought leader and the person who understands and the one who is going to advocate for their best interests. You're a fixer. Most high performers are fixers. Nobody is there advocating for them for their best interests. And usually they get surrounded by people who take and are willing to take as much as they can and give as little as they can in return. And they need somebody there to keep them accountable to it because they just want to live in their true nature because that's how they feel fulfilled. And if I can be that for people who are shaking the world with their steps because they're making huge impact, I've done well because those people need to be poured into. And they typically don't have anybody to do that for them. I really enjoy filling that gap. And so as we wrap this up, if somebody's listening to this, who's considering taking the pill, what do you tell them? I tell them that their dreams should be real, whether anybody's told them that recently or not. I think as kids, we're taught to dream and ask what we want to be when we grow up and all this stuff. And then that stops. And then we get told to be realistic and to do things that are practical because we don't want to fail because that's the worst thing that can possibly happen is failing at something that we try to do. And I'm encouraging you, whatever it is. I was the kid that had the Lamborghini on my wall. So I I want the Lamborghini in my driveway. I I think that is a thing that can happen. Whatever the thing is, I, I, I want them to have it. And so I tell you that your dream should be real. And now that you've heard that, because you've listened to this hour of content of me and Brian going back and forth bannering, now you're culpable. That's a legal word. (laughs) (laughs) 
So you've got to go do something with it. You can't just put it on the shelf. You, you absolutely have to act on it. And if there's anything I can do to help you, I'm excited to do so because we need more people doing the things that they were placed here for instead of trying to figure out how to get more money so they can buy another trinket. Jerome, thanks for being the first guest on Colloquium. This is such an awesome platform. <laughs> I don't know where we're going to go with it, but we're going to have some cool conversations. And, you know, if you are listening, you want to get in touch with Jerome, shoot me a note. I'll make it happen. It's worth your time to, to talk to him. He's got deep knowledge and he cares. So thank you for spending time with us. And this is awesome, man. I'm super excited for your launch. And if I can do anything for you specifically, let me know. Hook me up one of those shirts, man. You'll get one later. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Thanks, man. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.